Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Our New Testament reading is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 to 14. For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even mention what such people do secretly. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. So I, uh, last week, if you were here, um, I said that uh, I was going to come back to a particular phrase all the way through Lent each week. Um, and uh, so I'm going to get it all out of the way right off the top. <laughs> and the phrase is this. This has been wreaking holy havoc on my life, and that's why I keep wanting to share it with you, um, to wreak some holy havoc in yours, perhaps. And the phrase is this, that there is only intentional spiritual formation and unintentional spiritual formation. Right? There is no neutrality when it comes to our spirits, to our souls. And maybe in this season of Lent, uh, this season of taking stock, of deepening our commitment, we might be especially aware, or as Paul puts it in the passage we just heard, awake uh, to this reality. There is no neutrality when it comes to the abundant life uh, for which we are made. That begins not with outward benefits or outward accomplishments, but in our hearts. And that's the true order of things, right? We become most fully who we are from the inside out. Now, somehow we're often tricked into believing it's the other way around, that there's uh, this insidious thought I don't think any of us can kind of avoid that says that our true fulfillment is like somewhere else, somewhere out there, right? Like, I'll be happy if, I'll be happy when, fill in the blank, (laughs) We're regularly told that our our fulfillment is in the trinity of our wants and needs and feelings, but that is an idol that can never be satisfied. It it promises everything and leaves us with nothing. And in today's passage, I think that's what Paul's getting at. That's the order of things. God first, everything else next, (laughs) which uh, is we're called into and also think sometimes. Uh, Maybe saying so boldly makes some of us squirm. So let's, let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for the witness of your words that uh, to seek after your kingdom is, uh, is the greatest joy, the greatest freedom, the greatest uh, sense of purpose that we can have because it's what we're made for. And so we pray that uh, this morning my words would be faithful to your word. And if we hear your voice, don't let us Harden our hearts, but let us follow all all the more eagerly. 
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds be acceptable in your sight. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So there is nothing other than intentional spiritual formation and unintentional spiritual formation. I I think that's more or less what Paul is getting at when he says, try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord, (laughs) which is kind of a wild commission, right? Like, just go ahead and probe the heart and mind of God. (laughs) Okay, Paul. Except he seems to think that we're up for it. Paul is taking us a lot more seriously than we tend to take ourselves here. Now, he will not allow us to imagine that somehow the heart and mind of God is only really open to the especially spiritual or the religious professionals or the the monks and nuns who are cloistered away and praying all the time. No, he's saying this to business folks and homemakers, retired soldiers and laborers, to farmers and servants. He knows who he's talking to, and he doesn't stumble over this encouragement, try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Like, you have access to the heart of God. (laughs) You you can go deep with the one who made the heavens and the earth, the one whose very breath enlivens all things. A few verses before what Levi just read for us, he he says something every bit as wild and, and maybe even more. He says this, he says, "'Put away from you all bitterness and slander "'together with all malice, and be kind to one another.'" tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ, as God in Christ has forgiven you, which would be enough. But then he says this, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And in other words, look to your divine parent and become like them. And live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fra- fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We're not just curious about what makes God happy. We're made to be imitators of God, to get in on God's pleasure, on God's world-making joy. We are to do what God in Christ has done, is doing, and will do. I don't know about you, but I feel under-equipped for that in a lot of days. <laughs> and of course, I am under-equipped for that in at least one sense, and, and so is everyone else. But it's it, it, in a clever deception, it tends to be not the way we think that we're under-equipped. So we're under-equipped to the degree that we try to do it on our own steam, that we try to do it according to our desires, or that we try to do it in line with stories that are other and opposed to God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now what we discover as we lean in, uh, as we accept this invitation to find out what is pleasing to God, is that we are exactly equipped for this. St. Peter puts it like this, he says, But our God's divine power has given us everything needed for life and for godliness through knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. God's divine power has given us everything needed for life and for godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. This is the stuff that enlivened the early church and has enlivened every movement that's in line with the will and way of Jesus ever since. This is the conviction that in Jesus, we see that there is nothing that God will hold back from us, that we are made even in our weakness to be vessels for God's resurrection power, that our truest identity is as image bearers of the God who made this world in love and is loving it even into wholeness even now. That's who we really are. 
Paul's invitation, his commission to the church in Ephesus and by the time-bending power of the Holy Spirit, his commission to us is to receive that identity freshly, to step out from under the stuff that mars and mangles our true selves. He's shaking us awake to who we really are, not who we could be if, but who we really are. We really are the kinds of people who are made to know the heart of God, to get in on God's pleasure. And we are perfectly free to set anything else, anything less, aside. Which, of course, is, you know, easy to say. <laughs> and much, much harder to do. Most of us have not been trained in seeking first the kingdom of God and letting everything else be added, as Jesus puts it. Most of us have been taught how to get everything else and try to fit the kingdom of God into that, into the little boxes we've made for ourselves. We've been told that our spiritual formation is incidental to the real world, right? That what we see on the news and in the stock markets, what influencers and experts tell us, what our parents or friends think about us, our grades and our careers, and all that stuff is what's really real. That's what's really real. And that stuff is right there. It's, it's seductive because it's so obvious, right? We can, we can touch it. It's sometimes appealing. It's often good stuff. It occasionally makes us feel like we have a grip on things. And all of it's fleeting, invariably fleeting. On our own steam, none of us makes it out of here alive. Right? The things that would satisfy us temporarily, the stuff that makes us happy for the moment, can't stack up against eternity. And when Christians talk about eternity, we shouldn't just imagine it as sort of heaven after we die. Right? We can trust in that promise, certainly, but it's about letting the, the unquenchable, eternal, new-making life of God infiltrate, break into our present here and now. And the truth is, most of the world, most of the time, isn't concerned about uh, what happens after we die, about life after death. I mean, this is an increasingly useless evangelism strategy to ask people if they know where they're going to go when they die. And because most people, most of the time, I think, are wondering if there's life before death right? Like life that's truly life. Not just making a living or staying alive for as long as possible, or even making the most of ourselves in our limited time, whatever that looks like, but life that is truly life, God-shaped life. What is what Paul is inviting us into here and now, and if we're going to be imitators of God, if we'll find out what is pleasing to the Lord, that begins from the inside out, not the other way around. And it begins in a formative relationship with the one we're made to image and imitate. It begins by paying attention to the one whose pleasure is our deepest pleasure, whose joy is our most abundant joy, whose glory is our full humanity. You know, the goal is not to be kind of subsumed in God, but to be united with God. When we get after the stuff that God's after, we don't lose ourselves, we find ourselves. So Jesus says, if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose it for the sake of the kingdom, you'll have more life than you can handle. And here's an unexpected thing. It's, not a, it's counterintuitive, but the saints in every generation uh, attest to it. That when we start to ask what God wants, we tend to get the same question back. You know, regularly in the Gospels, in the stories of Jesus' ministry, we hear Jesus ask, what they want from him. It's the first question that he asks in the Gospel of John to his first disciples. Is, what are you looking for? 
In other words, what do you want? And this is like a deep down soul question, right? The answer is not, you know, washboard abs and more money, though, <laughs> if it's on offer. You know, it's not a perfect family or good health. It's not our dream job or our best marks. Again, some of that stuff is really good, but it's not everything. Even the best things can't bear the full weight of our deepest desires. They, they can point to them. They, they can be sources of joy and satisfaction. They can hint at the, the fulfillment that we desire, but they are not... They're not made to be that ultimate fulfillment. You know, in my, in my life, Kate and the boys are, are undeniably uh, the, the best thing I have going for me. Like, without qualification, uh, I am lucky beyond all deserving. And if I put all of my hope and deepest needs on them, it will crush them and disappoint me. <laughs> right? Not Not only because they are human and perfect, but because they're not made to completely satisfy me. Right? They, they have a deep purpose beyond that. And if I spend all of my time and energy trying to please them, it's going to be just as bad. But if we're willing to learn together, as we learn together, uh, to find what pleases God, what God wants, then we'll be on to something. Right? And we'll hear the question back, what do you want? What do you really, deep down in your guts, want? And, and I, I think it's always dangerous to paint with too broad a brush, but I think the answers are pretty universal. Don't we want goodness and beauty, justice and love, freedom and dignity, rest for our restless souls? Don't we want what's good and right and true, as Paul puts it? I think that's the stuff we crave most deeply because it's the stuff we're made for. We're made to receive it, and we're made to give it. We're created in the image of the one who is love, who is beauty, who is freedom, who is goodness, who is justice, who is delight, who has been working these things into the world since before it was formless and void. And there's all sorts of things working against our deepest desires, and there are all sorts of voices trying to tell us a different story about this God-beloved world and our place in it. And that's why we have to be intentional about trying to find out what pleases God. Because otherwise we'll live according to some other narrative. Right? We, we can't live without a story about how things are. We are story-making creatures, whether we kind of recognize it or not. That's how we make sense of our world, the stories we tell. And if we're not paying attention to the story that God is telling, we'll fall for something else. And Kate and I have been watching this uh, documentary series about Bernie Madoff on Netflix. And if you don't know who Bernie Madoff is, uh, it's enough to know that he masterminded a, a massive investment fraud that made a handful of people very, very rich and decimated a whole bunch of others. It was all in the name of greed, which he admits quite casually. And what's most striking, I think, to me anyways, is the willingness of people to be lured into the story that he and the environment he occupied were, were telling, right? Both those who helped perpetuate the fraud and also those who were willing to accept things that they knew were too good to be true were sucked into a lie about how things are. I mean, Madoff's primary talent seems to have been weaving a story that hinted at people's deep desires for security and blessing and beauty and freedom and extraordinary possibility. 
Evil always dresses up well, right? <laughs> if sin wasn't fun, we wouldn't do it. But it was all built on lies and manipulation and bullying. There was no tenderheartedness, as Paul calls us to. And of course, the world's most elaborate Ponzi scheme may be fairly low-hanging fruit to make this point. But it's an example of something that's shameful, done in secret, as Paul puts it. And I do think it really is just a stark example of how seductive other narratives can be. Whether they were directly or indirectly involved in the crimes committed, everyone in Bernie Madoff's orbit seems to have been succumbing to the lure of easy and extravagant wealth, a vision of the world that was rooted in greed and power and self-indulgence and control, but also in a profound fear of lack and a willingness to avoid the truth if it was personally convenient to ignore it, to not know it. In the end, all of the promises were empty. They had to be, because it was a lie about how things are. And there are lots of ways that we might tell the story of how things really are, but here's a good one. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all of the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I mean, what if that's what pleases God? What if that's the way that things truly are? What if the maker of heaven and earth is with us and for us, that we really do have everything we need, not according to our own efforts or our fleeting desires, but according to God's power and glory? What if we're called to follow the one whose voice is, who leads us uh, and his deep desire is to lead us into places of nourishment and rest and restoration. He restores my soul. Don't we need that? He restores my soul. So good. That we can be led in righteous ways, paths towards whole relationships, relationships of creativity and delight, of joy and peace and flourishing with God, our true selves, each other, and all of creation. That even when we walk through those seasons of deep fear and uncertainty, those seasons that feel like a living death, where evil and pain seem to lurk around every corner, even there we're never alone. And more than that, not only are we not alone, but we have one leading us who's already walked the path before us and come out to the other side. He's leading us in that way, come what may that the God of the universe is even now preparing a banquet for, with a seat at the table for us, a banquet with tables laden with food, cups overflowing with the best of wine, a wild celebration because the lamb who sits on the throne of the universe is victorious over all the ways of sin and death. That we're not being constantly pursued by the possibility of failure or relentless sickness, or our deep sense of inadequacy, 
or the fear and overwhelm, the overwhelming fact that the world appears to be coming apart at the seams some days. Some of that may be very true, and none of it will get the last word because goodness and mercy are coming after us. They are chasing us down and they will not stop until they have us and have brought us into the house of the Lord forever, safely into the arms of the one who has been waiting for us to come home, safely into the arms of the one who is making all things, even us, new. What if that's the story that echoes in God's heart, if that's what pleases God? What if that was the story we were learning to live by daily, <laughs> that we got more intentional about living into all the days of our life? What if that's the truest story we can tell about us and about this God-beloved world? May it be so. Amen. Amen.